Well, hello everyone. Today is Thursday, May 31st, 2018. Today is episode 86 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. My name is Rafael Garcia, and as always, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, as always, I appreciate everyone's support for listening to our show and following us uh, week in and week out. If you would like, please subscribe to the MMA Ratings YouTube channel and like and share our content across your social media networks. You can always uh, find us here at MMARatings.net where we are covering sport or mixed martial arts. Sometimes we branch off into other avenues as well, but um, we're here to cover the MMA arena. And as always, this is the only platform where you can tell us what you think of the fights, providing insight and letting us know your thoughts and feelings. So Hello. as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you for spending time today. And um, my partner Swan just joined in. How are you doing there, sir? Good. How about yourself? Good, man. Good. It was another late night, but luckily not too late for us to get a show going. So thank you for your time today, man. Yeah, no problem, man. It's always a pleasure. Of course, of course. So, um, we got a couple of different things I want to talk about today. We have some retirement news to talk about. We have pretty big fight card coming up this weekend, and I also want to look back at um, a f- event from this past weekend. But as always, you know, we try to talk. We try to start with news first. So let's talk about um, Michael Bisping. You know, he announced his retirement this week during his podcast. He's walking away from the fight game and and me personally i think this is legit i think he's done for a variety of reasons especially like the injuries to his eyes he's been suffering lately but when you first heard of the retirement news what was your initial thought uh that's probably the best thing for him to do i don't think he's he's a he's a functional fighter at this stage given all the given all the injuries given how many fights he's had getting how many rounds he's gone. It's just best for him. I mean, he's leaving off the high point. Me personally, I probably would have retired after I defended the belt versus uh, Henderson because that would have been a fairy tale ending. But um, now's as good a time as any, especially after two back-to-back basically punishing fights. And I think what's most interesting about Michael Bisping is the way he snatched um, the opportunity that came when he stepped in to face uh, Luke Rockhold on last minute's notice. Everyone was expecting him to get punished during that fight. He had already lost to um, Rockhold once, and he was coming in, I think, on two weeks' notice. I want you to think about this. Imagine if he would... Most people would not take that fight on two weeks' notice. Here you facing the guy who's dominated you the first time, and you're asked to take a fight on two weeks' notice. You were, you were the second choice because the UFC originally went to Jacare first, and Jacare said, no, I'm not taking this fight on two weeks' notice. And here we are with Bisping taking the opportunity and knocking Rockhold out in the first round um, to secure the middleweight title. What would his – and I want, to, I want to kind of talk about this in two separate, separate phases. The first question is, what would be his legacy had he not taken and won that fight? Uh, I would say his legacy would be that he's 
he's a guy who got everything out of his talent. Like he's a guy who really proved the point that if you want it bad enough and you push hard enough, almost anything's possible. And he was never the most athletic guy. He's never the most hardest hitting or the most skilled. He kind of worked himself into a legitimate contender and he kind of worked himself into position no matter how many times he lost and lost spectacularly till he got to a championship. So it's like that theme where everybody says, if you give your best, you do your best. You're always prepared. You're always ready to go. Eventually something good will happen. He's probably the embodiment of that theme. You know, I, it's been interesting listening to people talk about Michael Bisping over the week since his um, retirement. He's 30 and nine, 30 victories, nine losses, 20 of those, so all nine of those losses came in the UFC, and 20 of those victories came in Octagon. I think he's second all-time for most victories. He may be first. He may be first all-time for most victories in the UFC. He's the only English-born champion, um, and he really kind of paved the way for that area uh, in the fight game. Even if he didn't have this victory and he didn't secure the title, I think we would have we would look back and we would have a positive look on Michael Bisping. He's someone who he'd be Kenny Florian, basically like a meaner Kenny uh, Flor- Kenny Florian, a guy who got lots of opportunities, who did very well, you know, over overshot his talent or his limitations, but he was never able to win the big one. He'd essentially be a less polite or less fondly thought of Kenny Florian because he would have been a guy who came up short. That's all, all of that is true. Um, all of that is true. I think that I wouldn't say Kenny Florian per se, because I don't know if Kenny Florian was ever really a draw. Michael Bisping was a draw. Um, he may not have been like the biggest draw, but he was definitely someone who was able to organically sell a fight. And it was hilarious along the way too. Um, watching him, just the way he talked about individuals, and he did it in a way where it it, it felt unscripted, but it felt real at the same time. Like you, could, I felt like he believed everything he was saying, and that made it much more believable. Like you look at the shit that Kobe Covington said today, you look at some of the stuff that Conor McGregor has said over his run, and it's like these motherfuckers don't believe that 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 type of stuff that they're saying. But if you look at what Bisbing said over the years and the way he behaved in that time in that time span, I think he really believed what he said, and that makes it much more genuine to me, which is a positive when you look back on his legacy. Yeah, a lot of what he said, it wasn't really anything crazy. He'd often just say, "I'm better than this guy," and to give you the reasons. He tell you he didn't like this guy and he give you reasons. It wasn't anything outlandish. The biggest thing I remember on that that aspect of him is the fact that he did his job completely as a fighter. As a fighter, it's never just your job to prepare and to fight and to win. Part of your job is to create the interest for the matchup. Like every fighter keeps saying, you know, I'm so good. I've beat so many guys in so many fights in a row, but I can't get any attention. And Michael Bisping was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that the fights he had were fully attended, fully keyed in on, and got as much of the fans' interest as possible, even if it meant having to go out of his character a little bit, even if it meant having to say some things. He understood that's part of his job as a fighter, to be the fighter he wants to be and have the opportunities he wanted to be. He had to create interest. It wasn't just especially given the fact that he's not a knockout guy or a super dynamic athletic guy. He's kind of a grinder, you know, fight you for five whole rounds, push you, and eventually break you down kind of guy. And that's not the kind of guy who gets a lot of attention. 
So if he wanted attention and he wanted a chance to make a name for himself, he had to create interest. And that's what he did. And a lot of fighters should learn from him because he basically built himself up. He didn't have the most exciting style. He didn't have a huge camp he came from. He didn't have a lot of celebrity friends. What he did was he performed when he was called on. He always performed well. And he made, he created an identity for himself that would bring in fans and would force the promotion to put attention on him. And a lot of guys are saying, I don't want to be that kind of guy. Well, that's fine. You don't have to be that guy. You don't have to give the interviews. You don't have to talk the trash. That's all your choice. But you can't complain if other guys are getting over on you or other guys are getting opportunities you don't want to. That's also part of your job, not just to do your job, but to give people a reason to care about you doing your job. And he always made sure he did that. What's interesting about this conversation is that, you know, you said, yes, Bisbing wasn't a, um, a, a, a big knockout artist, but if you look at his record, I mean, he had 20 professional stoppages. 20 of his 30 wins came via stoppage. 17 of those were via some form of knockout. So, I mean, he had the ability to get the wins and to get the, the big stoppages. I don't think he had a lot of them toward the end of his career, which is kind of what people will always remember him for, but he had the ability to get the, uh, the uh, stoppages. Um, it's just, it's kind of like the Holly Holm effect. Like Holly Holm throws like, for every one punch you throw, she throws four. If you're throwing that kind of volume and you're a real puncher, you put somebody, somebody would have to have a chalk outline around them because you hit that hard. It's like a uh, junior DeSantos doesn't land 50 shots a fight because nobody can stand up to 25 clean ones, much less 15. I mean, I don't mean to say that he can't hit at all, but a lot of it is just that constant volume. You know, if you're throwing, I think he has record for punches per round or strikes per round, and he keeps such a high pace, that'll eventually wear you down. But as far as that dynamic, like I hit you with a one-two or a one-shot and you're out, he's just, he's just never been that guy. He's not like a Jose Aldo or a Conor McGregor. That's, that's what I meant more so. Yeah, and I can definitely agree with that. When you look across Bisping's record and his resume – what do you think is his most important win? I mean, he has he has wins over. Let's see, let's see. He has some pretty important uh, ones. I'll tell you, two, I, I got two wins. Right, I know the two most important wins he ever had. What do you got? In my opinion, the first would have been Anderson Silva because that was the first time he faced a name guy and he actually beat him. All the other times, he came up short. Lost mm-hmm. to Chael Sonnen, lost to Rashad Evans, lost to. Anderson Silva was the first name he beat, and because he beat Anderson, that was what kept him in contention for the Luke Rockhold fight. Because he loses to Anderson, Anderson most likely gets that title shot at Luke Rockhold, even if it's last second. That's pretty much the win that put him that put him across the line and put him in position for Luke Rockhold. Luke Rockhold would have been the second, but without that Anderson Silva win, he he never would have gotten that shot. So what's the second biggest win? The Luke Rockhold win, because that's the win that established like all those years of him coming up short because before he could never make it to the title fight he would always come up a little bit short so anderson silva got him to the title fight basically essentially and luke rockhold was when he executed and that was when everything came that's when everybody really acknowledged what he had done because he was a guy who started from a low level and worked his way all the way to the title and he was a guy who didn't have the talent and got a second chance and he actually was able to execute and i but i think the anderson silva fight probably defines him a little bit more in the Luke Rockhold fight, because he had to come through some rough spots against Anderson Silva and come back to win that fight to hang on. Against, against Rockhold, once he landed that shot, it was essentially over. But this fight against Silva, he had to show some grit. He had to show the conditioning. He had to show the heart. He had to show the toughness. He had to show the discipline and pull that fight out. Against Rockhold, basically, he found a flaw in Rockhold's approach, which is his boxing, 
landed one good shot, the fight was over. So I'm going to take you up on that, but I'm going to challenge you. On I'm going to challenge you as well because I think the Bisbing win over Rockhold was big. The Bisping win over Anderson Silva, I'll let you keep that one. I think that one was big as well. But I'm going to go with the win over Dan Henderson because we remember. I can see that. We remember what happened the first time these two guys fought. We remember what happened. Um, Bisping basically, I mean, Henderson basically made a logo out of the man. Um, he made a logo out of him. And to see him come back face Henderson again as a champion, defend the boat against them, and face adversity again, because he got knocked down in that fight too um, as well. And it looked like a minute, for a second there, he wasn't going to get the win. But he was able to pull out the victory that kind of, I don't want to say redeemed him, but that, that took a bad taste out of his mouth that he was able to go 25 minutes with Dan Henderson and, and get the win. Yes, we know Dan Henderson wasn't the number one contender at the time. He wasn't the number five contender at the time. But he almost snatched that title away from Michael Bisbing in a way that would have deeply sullied Bisbing's career. But seeing him get the win there was um, definitely, I think, one of my career points for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that one. The only reason I didn't give it to him is because at that time, Henderson was ranked like 14th. I want to say that Rockhold, of course, was a champion. And if I recall correctly, I think Anderson, I don't know if it was before Bisping or after him that he beat Brunson. So, like, since Henderson was kind of on the decline, he lost and he basically retired um, after Anderson beat him. After he beat Anderson, it's like I think Anderson beat Derek Brunson. So then you had Anderson have a, a win over a top 10, top 12, top middleweight. So it kind of makes his win over him look that much better when the guy you beat goes on to beat somebody of a higher caliber or somebody who's considered elite. It kind of is like, oh, wow, maybe we underestimated this guy because in hindsight, he beat him, and that guy just turned around and beat a top 10 guy who was like maybe a fight away from a title shot himself. So that's, I, I do think that the Henderson fight did show something, but a lot of people were mad about that fight because of Henderson's ranking and how badly he had declined. Yeah, I think he was like 15 at the time. I mean, everybody was calling it a far. I mean, pretty much everybody was calling it a farce, and and nobody really thinks fondly of it, just because of the nature of the fight. They felt like he was cherry picking, trying to keep his title until a money fight came. And I mean, at at that point in time, I wouldn't blame him, you know, because he, Bisping is one of those guys who gave a lot to the organization. He's kind of like Frankie Edgar, someone who continuously gave, gave in a way that was almost um, ill-advisable. Um, yeah, but but we remember when that fight happened. We did talk about it. We talked about it, and we were saying. Basically, the Henderson fight is getting him a lot of crap right now. But when he retires, people are going to think very fondly of Michael Bisping because the fight the fight was panned by everybody. People were just tearing down his character, tearing down his record as a fighter, essentially because of the nature of that fight. After the fight's gone, he's retired. Now all the warm feelings come back. People look at the entirety of his career that he never ducked anybody. But at that moment, people were just he's a, he's a ducker, he's a coward, he's a fake, he's a phony. So that fight did that fight was not well received during, before, or after. You know, even though he won, people were like, "You went over a forty-year-old guy who can barely get out of bed. Big deal." Huh. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there. Um, so let's move on and let's look back to the action that occurred uh, this past weekend at UFC Liverpool, where uh, Darren Till earned a unanimous decision 
victory over Stephen Thompson. Um, in the welterweight division, and I say welterweight with the asterisks because Till did not make weight. He came in, I think, three and a half pounds over. Um, first and foremost, question that everyone's been answering this week, who did you have winning the fight? Oh, I thought I, it was a close fight. It could have gone either way, but I really, I really was confident that Till won the fight. Why so? It, it wasn't. It wasn't a question for me. Uh, well, essentially, the whole the whole thing about it is there was only one real. There was only one guy really doing damage. Stephen Thompson would land the occasional counter one two straight right to the body. A couple flick, flipping kicks here to the body, trying to get to the head. But the real damage consistently was done. When Till landed those kicks to his leg, you can see through the fight, Thompson's leg was messed up from the leg kicks and from those front stomp kicks to his knee. And the biggest moment of the fight, where anybody can really remember something, was the knockdown. Every other round was really close. It was little, you can go either way in every round. Thompson might land a little bit more volume. Till was landing a little bit more power. Neither guy was doing a lot. But the only moment that stood out in the fight that really stood out to anybody is when the one time he hit him clean, like clean and got some power on it, he dropped him. So the only guy who dropped anybody, the only guy who really did damage or harm would have been Till in a fight that was nip and tuck, where neither guy was really doing a whole lot of consistent, effective, obvious da damage. And um, that's why I originally went with Till in the first place. I, I like Thompson. He's a good guy. He's a good fighter. He has a unique style. But Thompson's kickboxing record is grossly overrated. And even though I think he's a good striker and a very good MMA striker, to me, Thompson is the worst kind of striker. He's a guy who, as long as he's got an athletic advantage, as long as he's facing inferior strikers, he's gutsy, he's, he's active, he's aggressive, he counters actively. But once you face a guy who doesn't give him clean counters, once you face a guy who doesn't run straight in or just pressure, once you face a guy who's got some structure in his attack and his defense and has some discipline, he's afraid to pull the trigger. If you face a guy who's got comparable athleticism or superior, comparable skills or superior, he turns into a different fighter. When he fought Tyron Woodley, Woodley's not half the striker he is. But Woodley's dynamic, he's explosive, he hits hard. As soon as he takes that power, Thompson wasn't the same fighter he was versus Ellenberger versus Johnny Hendrick. Against Phil, once he saw the openings were there and Phil was fading his way in and trying to close the distance and walk him down, all of a sudden he wasn't as comfortable opening up or pulling the trigger on the counter. He saw the counter, he saw the opening. He didn't want to pull the trigger because he was afraid that he'd fight on something so he's got really hesitant once the skill level started changing once the athleticism wasn't in his favor and um that's why that's one of the main reasons i i went with hill because there wasn't as big a gap between till and everybody else stephen thompson faces and once you don't have that gap he's not the same fighter he becomes more hittable he becomes more hesitant and he won't commit to a shot and he won't throw a lot of them either he'll faint he'll get you in position with the shots like the trigger on and that's essentially what happened he just held back held back held back and, his, and Hill had the biggest moment of success in the fight when he dropped him. And that's, that's what determined the fight. There was no robbery. Thompson didn't get robbed. He didn't get misplaced. He didn't get put over. He lost the fight because he wouldn't pull the trigger, because he wouldn't, do, he wouldn't throw enough volume, and he wouldn't throw enough power. It's the same reason he lost the other two shots he had the title, because he wouldn't do those very same things again. So you said quite a bit there. Um, me, personally, I had to fight 3-2 for Thompson. Um, I thought that he was doing more in the round, the rounds before he got dropped. Um, I think I was one, two, and f whatever 
the the one before he got dropped. Not not the last one. Not one, two, and three. Like one, two, and f- which one did he get dropped in? Four or five? I think it was four. Five. He got dropped in five, so maybe it was four that I had for him. Um, but it was definitely a close fight. I could see it going either way. It definitely, I agree. It is not a robbery. It was a close bout. Um, let me ask you this. How much did the hometown crowd play in him getting the the, the call, or did it play I, at all? I don't, I don't, I don't think the hometown fans had anything to do with it. I know that's an easy thing to say, but the thing about it is, you you just look at the fights with Woodley, and I know you shouldn't compare fighters, but what happened once there was a threat against Thompson? He just he he did a lot of moving, a lot of feinting, but he wasn't pulling the trigger even when the opening was there. He would not open up. He'd throw some. He'd flick him. He'd push him. He'd kick him around a little bit, but he, he wasn't putting any heat on it, and he wasn't putting any volume on it. And that's essentially what, what was the determining factor. He, was, he wasn't throwing enough volume to say that I'm clearly outworking Darren Till on the feet, and he didn't throw enough power to ever make Till take a backward step or to rock him or drop him where it's like, oh, okay, he's doing enough power where he's damaging him. Thompson wasn't moving the same after the first couple rounds because Till kept kicking in his knee and kicking him to the back of his leg. That, that's a fact. And then the one time it comes down to a power shot, the person who did the most damage was Till. So it's hard for me to t- for people to tell me well, he was landing all these shots. His volume wasn't that high. And, with all of, and let's say he landed all the volume people keep telling me he landed. Why couldn't he slow Darren Till back down? Why couldn't he back him up? If he's landing all his volume, and he's so accurate, and he's so, got so much snap to his shot, why couldn't he stop the forward pressure? Why couldn't he move him back? Because I saw an actual change in how Thompson fought as Till slowly chopped away at his legs. He wasn't as explosive. He wasn't as dynamic. He couldn't close distance or maintain distance the way he wanted to. And then when Till landed a good shot on his down, and he was really hurt. He wasn't just like a flash knockdown. He was actually stunned and hurt by that shot. So let me ask you this then. With Thompson getting, oh, excuse me, with uh, Till getting this big win here, um, and you, it was, what's interesting is, well, let me back up. With Till getting this big win, I don't know if you saw the rankings this week, but he was bumped up to number two. Everybody else was bumped down. Um, or Everybody else was bumped down in the rankings. Let me pull it up real quick to check. Let me pull it up real quick. Sorry about that. My cats are fighting in the corner over there. But, um... Something interesting occurred here today that a lot of people have I don't really have a problem with him being deaf. He's done that before, though. So now it's Rafael Dos Anjos is one. Darren Till is two. Thompson, Covington, Lawler, Usman, and Maya will all bump down. Neil Magny increased. He's number eight. Then it's Jorge, Ponzinibbio, Cerrone, Nelson, Edwards. Oliveira and Dung Young Kim. Do you think that Till's win, even though he missed weight, should be enough to bump him up six positions over Kamara Usman and, and Kobe Covington? Um, I'm not sure about Covington, but even though I don't know that Covington's beat a guy who was comparable to Thompson's ranking, Thompson wasn't the number one ranked guy behind the champion. And um, even though Usman beat Damian Maya, Maya had already lost to Covington and did so more decisively than he lost to Usman. So I could see them 
I can see them going with Thompson. The only person Thompson's lost to other than Till in the past three or four years is the champion. Damian Maya has lost to a couple of people as a welterweight, and he lost to a couple of people recently. Lost to Covington in a in a one-sided fight, started out competitive and went one-sided, and then he lost to Usman in a competitive fight, but still another loss. That's two losses in a row. Actually, three losses in a row. Thompson had two losses in a row. Champion, he won a fight over a ranked guy, and he was going in with another ranked guy. So I could see how, as far as ranking-wise, it makes some kind of sense. Um, just because of who he's fighting and the fact that he won. I can't have a problem with the weight because they moved Josh Emmett up when he when he didn't make weight. Mackenzie Dern was ranked in a weight class that she wasn't even competing in because she couldn't make weight. So that falls in line with what they usually do in the UFC. Do you think that this uh, creates a situation where we see some, um, not animosity, but does this further impact the legitimacy of these rankings? I don't think they were really like legitimate to begin with, but does this further exacerbate that issue? It, it well, nothing can really impact the legitimacy because this isn't a. It's not a real sport. It's like a sport. It's sports entertainment. I mean, in the NFL, they have playoffs, NBA playoffs. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, the Final Four, all that. You you can't skip teams. You can't say, well, I want to play Dallas Cowboys or I want to play this team because it's a better matchup. You have to beat every team in front of you. you. There's no way around it. You have to beat. You can't get around it. Whereas in MMA, Darren Till can say he can avoid fighting. He can avoid fighting Guzman. Covington can avoid fighting someone else. Rafael Desanos can avoid fighting certain people. The cha- champion can refuse to fight. I don't want to fight the guy. In in a real sport, you don't have that option. You know, you you can't just play the Patriots. You can't play the Cowboys. It doesn't matter who's got the most rating or who's the most exciting. What matters is who is the actually best higher ranked fighter, fighter or team who's consistently winning. If you're not winning. And in MMA, you you can dance the round shots. You can hold people out. You can hold the title hostage. You can uh, not fight, not defend another title. Eventually, you can have a chance to win two titles and hold the title. That's all stuff they do for the bottom line because their their money is connected to the interest of the fight, the fan interest. NBA, NFL, they don't care about that. I mean, they care about it, but that does not supersede the ability of the sport. It's martial arts. How much money you make, and how much attention you have, will overshadow um, the quality, the quality of the matchup, or the quality of the fighter. In the- so, I mean, think about it this way: Who does not want to really get a title shot at Robbie Lawler? He didn't beat a lot of high-ranked guys. He beat like one or two. Who? When Tyrone Woodley got his title shot, outside of Kevin Gastelum, who's the high-ranked fighter that he beat to get his title shot? Um, uh, who else? Josh Kostek. I think he bought. He he knocked out another wrestler, Jason something. He he beat a lot of like second and third tier guys, and then he beat Gaslam, who didn't make weight, and then he sat out, and then he got a title shot. Let me see. That is a good question. Who was his biggest? I mean, Lawler was pretty much his biggest his biggest win in his career. Yeah, I'm curious now. Uh, Lawler, maybe Dong Young Kim, Carlos Condit, Josh Koshtek. And, and, and I'm not taking away the win from Condit, but and because he injured him with a leg kick, but that wasn't like it was just a clean, you know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't just a clean, dominant win or anything. It was he kicked him in the leg and he got injured. 
you know, so it's not like he had these series of dominant, clean wins that got him a title shot. So this is something, this isn't something brand new to the UFC. A lot of guys got title shots off of less than stellar championships when Chad Mendes got his second title shot. He beat a bunch of second tier guys on his way back to a rematch. They didn't have, have him beaten top five guys or top 10 guys. He's beaten guys he should beat. So this is, this is common for the UFC. And because it's common, that's why I say it's not that big a deal. So in talking about title shots here, what did you think about Neil Magny's win on uh, Saturday? Because he called out Usman, said he wanted to fight him next. Isn't And I'm, I'm thinking about working on a piece probably this week about Neil Magny, calling him the uh, forgotten contender. As, you, as I mentioned, you know, he's moved up in, in the rankings. I think he's number seven or eight now. Is Magny someone who we can see eventually contending for a title, or is he always going to be that gate, gatekeeper? I mean, based on the instance that he wins a lot and he competes very well and he's professional, he'll always be in the, in the title talks. The biggest thing is every every time he faces a certain caliber of talent, as far as an elite, as far as an elite opponent, he never he can never he can never find a way to win. Damian Maya almost killed the dude. Lin, Lorenz Larkin blew him out the cage. You know, when he faced the better guys, he has, he has rarely been able to pull off with. You get your, you have him against a certain caliber guy. And usually he gets defeated. It's kind of like the same thing that happened to Matt Brown. He puts all these wins together against third and fourth tier kind of guys. And then when he gets to that high second tier, low first tier, he gets routinely outclassed. And that's been Neil Magny. Now he can keep winning fights and keep himself in the discussion, but for him to get to the title, he's going to have to be an elite guy. So of course he's, he's going to call them out. He, he doesn't have a fan base. He's not a big draw. He's got to beat someone to get into that position that he wants to be in. So of course he's going to call Uzman out, but at this stage, beating Neil Magny does nothing for Uzman. needs a bigger name. Neil Magny's not it. Neil Magny's on the outside looking in, even more so than, than Uzman. So I mean, I, do, I just don't know that he can be an elite guy. His biggest win so far is Carlos Condit, as far as being the guy who's ranked and accomplished something. And that's a faded Carlos Condit who's a seller. I really I like I like Magny. He's a good guy. He's well prepared. He's well conditioned. But he's not the kind of guy who beat the elite, elite talent. And until he, he can consistently, or even once, beat elite talent, I'm not going for him. He's essentially Michael Bisbee, a guy who beats everybody else but can't beat the best. Donald Cerrone, a guy who beats everybody else, falls against the best every single time. He's that kind of guy. So who is the next man to get a shot at, at, at the title? If RDA or Covington wins, they're going to be chancing to unify. That's why they're having the interim shot. And the closest person after them is probably going to be Till. He wins one more fight, he's going to be in there. Uzman's a guy who's on the outside looking in because he, once again, he doesn't have a lot of top-end wins at welterweight. He just doesn't. Look at his 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 list of wins. His biggest win is Damian Maya on a two-fight losing streak before he fought him. And he had the least dominant performance against Damian Maya and the champion and Covington. Till got a decisive, maybe not a decisive win, but a close win over the number one ranked guy who had only lost to the champion. So Till's ahead. Maybe they'll have Till Ponzinibbio. If Ponzinibbio is healthy, that that might be a fight that could be made. But Till's clearly clearly the leader in the clubhouse. Usman on the outside looking in, and Bagney's outside of the planet looking, trying to find a place to fit in, trying to look for a place to land. I think Till, I think RDA and Till are the next two challengers for the title. RDA to to unify. And depending on who wins from that, and Till, Till wins his next fight, he's in there. Usman's got to win at least one or two more fights, minimum, 
So, um, you talked about the main event. Is there anything else that jumped out to you from UFC Liverpool? Anything else that caught your attention that's worth talking about? Um, let me think real quick. I'm trying to think. Uh, there wasn't too much to stand out. The Jason Knight, the Jason Knight fight was very good. Um, unfortunately, he lost. It seems like he's been kind of found out a little bit. There's a way to scheme around him because he's one of those guys who's got a who's got a dynamic ground game. But the fact of the matter is, he doesn't have a legitimate enough established wrestling game for one to create scrambles. And two, he's one of those guys. He's like Courtney Casey. He'll sit on his back and play rubber guard and search for submission and hunt for submissions instead of looking for reversals or ways to get back to it, get on top or looking for ways to get on his feet. Which means that if you have if you have a solid grappling background, you can essentially take him down and just hold him. Even if he's attempting submissions, he's working that rubber guard trying to balance you. He's not aggressively trying to get to his feet. He's not he's not aggressively trying to get back up. Which means you can control him. You can shift him up with shots and just control him to the decision. He's dangerous on the feet, but once again, his wrestling's not good enough to keep himself on the feet. His wrestling is good enough to keep him on the ground. His striking defensively isn't sound enough for him not to be in as much danger as you are. Even though he's got some athleticism, he's not a dynamic enough athlete to be dangerous as an offensive wrestler or an offensive striker. So essentially, his whole approach to the fight on where if you have a discipline, you have a public around, around, you can take him down, wear him out, or take him down in a fifth position. Still time runs. It, it, you got two clear paths to victory over him. He's been in the Let me check your volume. Your I said, if he's going to be in a prospect who has potential title shots or contendership to a guy who, you know, he could possibly be on a three fight losing streak in his next fight. So I found that interesting to see how quickly within about a year and a half time he went from hot prospect to a guy who people are, have a lot more questions about than they actually have faith in. Okay, I'm not even going to um, disagree with you there on that. So before we talk about this weekend's fight, let's also talk about Gegard Mousasi winning the Bellator middleweight title in a way that, I mean, I feel like was pretty predictable. Um, he defeated Rafael Carvalho in the first round of their fight. What are your thoughts about that bout there? Are you surprised that Mousasi won the title? I have another question about him in a minute, but are you surprised that he won the title and uh, the way he did it in such a dominant fashion? I'm not surprised he won because Car- Carvalho had he, he, he'd been fairly impressive, but the fact of the matter is he had struggled against Bellator's middleweight division, which is as then is just which is paper thin. He had struggled against Melvin Manhall, a guy who's seen his best best days, what, five years, five to seven years ago minimum? He had a time, hard time taking him down. He had a hard time striking with him. The thing with Musasi is Musasi is such a good all-round fighter. He can strike well enough to compete with world-class strikers. He's got good enough takedowns in wrestling that he can take down guys um, in an MMA context who have who are supposed to have superior wrestling. He's good enough to defend wrestling, and he's a good enough grappler where he can finish top end wrestlers and he can finish, you know, competent to very good grapplers. Carvalho is a dynamic athlete with some creative striking and some dynamic striking, but he hasn't been facing anybody who could force him into positions he didn't want to or put him, take him into places where he didn't want to go. His athleticism has been enough to get out of bad positions or keep himself in bad positions and his striking 
put enough fear in people that they wouldn't commit to takedowns, commit to putting pressure on him and walking him down. Musashi understood that Carvalho was most dangerous on the feet, and he didn't even really play around with him. He got the opening, took him down, put the punishment on him, and finished him. And there's such a gap between Musashi and Carvalho on the ground. There's really nothing Carvalho could do. I've heard people talk about a rematch, but there's no way there's a rematch. The fight wasn't competitive. So um, I wasn't surprised by how the fight went. I wasn't surprised by the ending. The biggest thing that did impress me was that Musashi didn't even attempt to play around with him on the feet, which a lot of guys would have done, you know, try to feel him out and get him to the point. But said, I'm not even playing with that. I'm going to get him to the ground, win the title, and move on to the next challenge. And, and speaking of next challenge, it seems like they're looking at a potential fight against him and, um, what's his name? Roy McDonald, uh, the current Bellator yeah. uh, welterweight title um, and the proverbial you know, um, on paper, UFC champion because he also has uh, a win over Tyron Woolley. I think he's the last person to um, defeat Tyron. So, what are your thoughts about that? There is that a fight that you want to see? A lot of people are kind of like up in the air about it. Is that something you 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 would want to see? Well, it's interesting because they're two highly skilled guys who are both known for their all-round skills facing really good fighters and having a, a long history in the mixed martial arts where they're competent in every area and they've held their own against some of the best strikers, the best wrestlers, the best grapplers. Both guys have done that. Obviously, Musashi's done it at a little bit higher level. Uh, the interest in it is that Rory is one of the bigger welterweights and people, a lot of people consider him more of a middleweight and he's trained with a lot of middleweights preparing them for other fights. So you figure he's got the size and he's got the experience and the world-class skills to compete. My question is, one, what does it do for each division? Because, I mean, in one instance, there's no real exciting fights at welterweight or middleweight. So I see why they make this fight. But a lot of what Bellator has done throughout the history of their, uh, of their promotion, they've taken the short money. You know, they'll have a, a sideshow fight or a fight between two champions or a fight between two names to get that kind of, what do you call it, that short, that short-term heat? Mm-hmm. Is that what you call it? That's fine. And, um, we'll take it. But what happens when you get past the short-term you still not develop. You haven't developed either division. Let's say McDonald beats Musasi. What, what does that mean for the middleweight division? Or what's worse, Musasi beats McDonald. And McDonald has to be out for another, what, six, seven months, eight months before he can fight again. You put the welterweight division on once again. So while it has a lot of appeal as far as the interest, fan interest from the hardcores, I don't know that it's a sexy enough fight that it really sells. And I don't know if it's worth holding up both of your champions. Because it's not like you said Bellator's made it made any big signings for welterweight or middleweight that are going to help flesh out the division anymore. You know, after they fight, you have the same problem you had before: no legitimate contender. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there at all. Um, hmm. I don't think Bellator cares though. I don't think they care about the idea of rankings. I don't think they care about the idea. Man, Steph Curry, are you kidding me? Are you watching this? Yeah. Sorry, um, you people didn't. Uh, the the yeah, people who our show did not reach out to us uh, and listen to our content for NBA. Um, I guess play by play and highlights. But guess what? You're going to get these NBA play by play and highlights tonight because it's game one. Of the right. finals, so you won't get them, and you won't get them. George, George, a lot of money if he knocks down even two of these. Dude, it's twenty-three point five seconds. He only he only gets one, so it was, it was an and one. 
Cleveland's down. No, he didn't. He, no, they fouled him on, it was off the ball foul, but they're over the limit. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I thought I, I thought it was Amber. Clay Thompson hooked his arm and threw him to the ground. Oh, wow. Uh, nobody expected this fight to, this to be competitive. I kept telling people it was going to be competitive. Five seconds? Oh, it's a foul. <laughs> okay, so sorry, people. You, you got four seconds left in this game. You're going to get you got the, the rebound. NBA highlights. Oh, man. J.R. Smith blew it. I'm watching yeah, on the app, just... so I, I might be a little bit behind you. Oh, sorry, sorry. You can see the disgust in LeBron's face, man. Look at this man. With, with, look what J.R. Smith does. All right, Tristan Thompson on the line. That's where I am with four seconds left. All right, he hits one. Game tied. God, I hate West Coast games. Like, I legit hate West Coast games. Did you see J.R. Smith? No, I'm not. I'm not there yet. Tristan, Tristan is on the line. Overtime? What the JR, What the hell is J.R. doing? That's what I'm telling you, dude. He gets what the rebound, and instead of coming right back up to draw the foul. He dribbles away and holds oh, the ball. Wow, Lamar James was to punch him in the mouth. Okay, so Roger, the disgust, the disgust on his face. Listen, folks, one of the top athletes in the world that we would like to see do MMA is probably LeBron James, and we almost got a highlight of that in Golden State tonight. He's thinking he's like, Jr. I got you paid. You have one job: get the rebound, get me the JR ball, Smith get the hell idiot. out of. I'll tell you, one of my girls would have pulled that play. They they just walking home. They only have a ride. Jr. had no idea. Wow! It's a tie game. All these put it right back up. Get a foul. Wow. Game over. Okay. Anyway, what were we talking about? We were talking about Bellator and their divisions there. Yeah, they're, they're how they how they keep taking that short the rankings. They don't care about legitimacy. They're just trying to get the ratings and get that quick money. Yes, and I don't think they because of right now the biggest fight they have to offer is Paul Daly and um, MVP. And we're not getting that fight. I don't think we're no. getting that fight anytime soon because they know that Paul Daly will smash MVP right now. Um, yeah, they, they don't have they don't have a, they, the thing with the UFC. The UFC has them. They have a bunch of guys who have, have some kind of Q rating with the fans. They can put in multiple people into fights and at least know they're going to do a certain rating or do a certain amount of pay-per-view sales. Bellator doesn't have a lot of guys who are known or a lot of guys who are popular, who are even popular enough or have le enough legitimacy where they can just put them together and know I'm going to get a guarantee this kind of rating, get a guarantee that kind of rating. They don't have that kind of, they don't have that kind of depth. They don't have that kind of talent. They don't have that kind of personalities. And due to the fact that they don't have as much depth and talent, they keep putting all their big names against each other in every sort of combination possible so that the few guys who might have a fan base and, and might have been able to build up some kind of momentum and get the fans on their side, they don't have to because they got too many losses. David Rickles is a good example of that. They made him face Michael Chandler twice. He got brutally knocked out. He lost to the Pitbull, one of the Pitbull brothers. 
So every time he gets some momentum, he's got a great personality, he's got a great shtick, but he can't make any sort of headway because he keeps being put in so tough and getting wrecked. And it happens time and time again. And you can't get the fans behind somebody who's getting knocked out every other fight. Well, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Um, but I, I still think... I still think that Daly has uh, value to them, kind of in the same way that Mark Hunt has value to the UFC, almost in the same way that Donald Cerrone does as well, too. Um, I think that that they're going to they're going to hold him in that position. But once again, you 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 put Donald Cerrone, you put Matt Brown, you even put Neil Magny on five, six, seven fight win streaks. Paul Daly's lost as much as he's won in the past two years. And when he's lost, it's been decisive, if not embarrassing. Think, think about that. You know, when he lost to Fitch, that was domination, except for the first round. When he lost to Roy McDonald, that was easy work. So when he's lost, it's been pretty decisive and not very competitive. And when he's won, it's been exciting, but he's, he's never been able to put one, two, three fight wins together. He, he hasn't been able to do it in Bellator. So once again, it's hard to maximize his potential or his fan base because you keep putting him in these matchups that are at best 50-50 fights for. Like, who who decided to put Paul Daly against John Fitch? Who was the genius who came up with that one? I mean, so let me ask you this then. With MVP stopping Dave Rickles the way he did, I mean, Dave Rickles someone who I believe he challenged for the lightweight title when he fought Michael Chandler. Do you – who do you go to next? You got to go somewhere. Because you can't keep putting him against cans, for lack of a better term. So where do you go next? I got a couple ideas. Um, you could always go. You could always go the Lorenz Larkin route. You MVP versus Lorenz Larkin. Yeah, you got two dynamic strikers, guys who kind of have unique styles of striking, athletic guys, guys who aren't particularly durable. You know, Lorenz Larkin is a favorable style matchup for MVP because he's a striker. He doesn't have the dynamic kicker, kind of create a striker, and then you have him against MVP, who's essentially just a different version of Lorenz Larkin. It, but it's a favorable matchup. It's a stylistic matchup that works. Who else would you say? You know, I mean, I, I don't know who else would I go. You can't put him on McDonald, clearly. I don't know that there's another lit outside of Daly that fight that works in favor of um, – that works in the favor of MVP as much as that fight with a uh, – what Larkin does. Hmm. Okay. And, I mean, and, just stylistically speaking, and he's not such a big knockout guy that you have to worry about MVP being ruined. Paul Daly is, though. We know that Daly lands that left hook. He, he's ending careers with that thing before. So the best fight I can think of is Lorenz Larkin. He's coming off a win. Maybe get him another win, and then have him fight MVP in like a six, eight months or so. Interesting. Interesting there. So, um, I think that's really it. All I wanted to talk about with Bellator for tonight because I want to look forward to UFC Utica where we have a pretty important bantamweight fight. We have Marlon Morales, 3-1 and one in the UFC. Uh, I think he's 3-1, and one, right, in the UFC. Um, coming off of a win. Uh -huh.
Which one? Yeah. That was in you hear me? Hello? 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 Uh, my thing with Rivera is he's very good at his team, and and Rivera seems like they're very smart people. They pick up on the triggers, the style, the rhythm, and the pacing of their opponent initially. The problem is if their opponent has a solid plan B or can make an adjustment, Rivera just never seems to be able to get it back together. You see fights early. He either blows guys out or he puts so much damage on them that he runs away with the fight. But the minute a guy... You know, if he, he expects a guy to come forward, he's ready for that. Got counters, takedowns, inside work in the clinch, um, ground and pound. He's got everything ready. But if all of a sudden that guy starts fighting off the back foot or drawing him in and looking for counters, it's like um, he doesn't know what to do. Like he can't make an adjustment. He's like almost a strictly game plan fighter who's got enough power, durability, and skills where he, he can take a fight over and basically take lead and sit on it. But if you make any sort of adjustment or you change your approach or your style or your weapons, he can't make an adjustment. So he's got to depend on whatever damage he did early, early in the fight to carry him. Or he's got to hope that you don't you have a, a lack of power or maybe a lack of killer instinct to really make him pay for the fact that he can't figure out a defensive or offensive measure to stop you from doing whatever you want to. In fights to go rounds, he starts off really hot and from about – the beginning of the second round, halfway through the second round to the end of the fight, he starts getting hit more. He starts missing more sh shots. He can't take guys down. Guys start taking him down because they start making adjustments in what they're doing, and he doesn't have an ability to adjust on the fly. And it doesn't seem like his team has an ability to just adjust on the fly either. So who so, do you pick uh, winning this fight and how? Um, I want to say more eyes. Cause it seems like he wanted the he wants to fight more. 
I, I think Rivera feels like he's above this kind of fight. Like he should be fighting Garbrandt or fighting Dillashaw and he shouldn't have to be fighting this guy. I don't know that he wants to fight as much. I think he's just had to settle for it. Um, and I think if he doesn't get Marias out there earlier, Marias will start getting his timing. He'll start getting accustomed to the power and the aggression. He'll start making adjustment, setting traps, um, attacking different levels on Rivera, and then he'll start taking him apart. I fully expect Rivera to ju- kind of jump out to a lead and put something on him. But I feel that Morais has got has good enough camp and has enough athleticism and dynamic striking skills where he's going to make some kind of adjustment. If he's getting pressured, he'll find a way to beat the pressure. If he's um, being offensive, he'll start sitting back and setting traps. If the fundamentals aren't working, he'll start throwing spinning kicks and, and front kicks and fly and Superman punches, whatever it takes to change the pace and the rhythm of the fight. And once the rhythm or the pace has changed or the tone of the fight has changed, then I fully expect for a Rivera to start kind of falling apart and trying to hang on and just trying to fight his way through it instead of actually making technical and strategical adjustments that allow him to be put in the best position possible to win the fight. Hmm. Interesting there. Um, I think this is an important fight for both men. And it sets the table for the winner, I think, to be on the short list of title contenders at Bantamweight, especially if the fight between Demetrius Johnson and uh, TJ Dillashaw never comes into play. But uh, the thing about UFC Utica is there's a lot on this card that I think makes this card Good, better than some of the other events we've gotten at this level in recent uh, months. We got Nick Lentz fighting in the co-main event. This may be his highest placement on the card yet to date. He's fighting uh, Leandro Santos. But I mean, we got Nick, the Carney Lentz, Lentz coming back and um, taking a big fight in the co-main event here. We have uh, Gleason Tebow, Desmond Green, my dude, Julio Arce, if you know, those of y'all who don't know, Julio Arce may have been my first MMA interview uh, years ago. I think like back in 2012, he was my first interview. So it was good to um, see him do his thing. Uh, Walt Harris, we got Siraj Eubanks and Lauren Murphy. I think that's an important fight there. Looking at this card here, what kind of stands out to you as another important bout for someone not in the main event? Well, the Eubanks-Murphy fight stands out to me. Because Murphy beat Honchak, and if she finds a way to beat Sajara Eubanks, she'll beat the girl who who was supposed to have the title shot. There, some would say that would put her in position to be in the talks for a title fight. Because I know everybody wants to see Valentina Shevchenko compete for the belt. I get that, but the fact of the matter is, Valentina hasn't beaten anybody of any rank and hasn't beaten anybody who has a win in that division in the UFC. Lauren Murphy would have been Barb Honchak, who is a formal title holder in Invicta and was considered the best girl that weight class in the world at one point. And she would have been, she, and if she beats Sajara Eubanks, then essentially she's beating the girl who was expected to get a title shot. Adam would have had a title shot versus Nico Montano had she not had the weight issue. So that fight holds a lot of weight for both girls. If Sajara Eubanks wins, there's, I think there's a discussion to say that she could get the fight because she was already scheduled to fight Montano for the belt. Why not just put her in position to have that fight again, make Valentina fight one more fight, and then have and then have whoever wins between Sajara and Nico fight Valentina for the belt? Because I, I really don't think Valentina has done enough in the weight class to demand a title fight of any nature or of any sort. 
Um, as far as the fight goes, it's an interesting fight because Eubanks is a world-class grappler, like a beyond a world-class grappler, but you haven't seen in her fight that you haven't seen world-class grappling as far as finishings, finishes, takedowns, transitions, or defense on the ground or counters on the ground. What you've seen is, at least in a tough run, you've seen discipline takedowns, you've seen some more workmanlike submissions, and you've seen dynamic striking and athleticism in the stand-up. The biggest issue I have for Sajara is Lauren Murphy's the kind of girl who puts a lot of volume, puts a lot of forward pressure on you. She can't allow Lauren Murphy to get going. If she lets Lauren Murphy get going with her pressure and her volume punching, Lauren Murphy's going to get her up against the fence. She's going to constantly attempt takedowns, and she's going to put Sajara on the back foot and grind her down, chipping away with knees, short punches, long punches, and just pushing her back and making a grinding fight, taking away Sajara's strength advantage and taking away her explosiveness advantage. And she's just going to wear her down over three, maybe look for a submission, but if nothing else, wear her down. What Sajara's got to do is stop Laura Murphy early, stop her forward pressure, and either get her to stand right in front of her, like Nico did, and pick her apart, or push her back. Because whether if Murphy's standing still or she's backing up, she's terrible on the feet. Her advantage on the feet is that she throws a lot of volume, she's not afraid to get hit, and she keeps going forward. Technically on the feet, she's terrible defensively, and she's very limited offensively. So Sajara needs to stop her momentum, and she needs to go to the body on her, and she needs to attack every single level, top to bottom, and then work for the takedowns. Because Lauren Murphy's biggest weapons are her forward pressure and her conditioning. You stop her forward pressure with the power and the movement, and then you take away her conditioning by attacking the legs and attacking the body, and take her two biggest weapons away. Once her two biggest weapons away, Lauren Murphy's a heavy bag with legs. And it's been proven time and time again when she's faced opponents who can, who can either get away from her pressure or who are strong and athletic enough to stop her pressure. She always ends up losing, getting controlled and beaten up or getting opposition and beaten up. Jar is a good enough athlete to do both of them. She just can't allow Lauren Murphy to get going early because once Lauren Murphy gets going early, it's very hard to stop her. So Sajara can, I think Sajara is going to win it, but I don't think Murphy's got the striking acumen nor the wrestling acumen to outclass her. But I do know it's very capable and Lauren Murphy can put her in a tough fight because she won't go away easily. If Sajara doesn't have her conditioning right and her discipline right, she's just going to get run over and basically worn down to a three-round decision loss. Huh. Do you think the winner of this fight gets a shot at the flyweight title? I think they have a discussion. I don't know who the UFC wants to get a title shot. It seems like they want Valentina, but the girl Valentina beat is terrible. She's the worst. She's, she's, the girl Valentina beat is the least legitimate win in the division outside of Paige Van Zandt losing. I mean, that girl was just awful. There was, she shouldn't have even been competing against a world-class opponent. They gave her a showcase fight, and she performed, she, she performed in a showcase fight. She hasn't had any real opposition. I think if Lauren Murphy wins, that's two wins at, at the weight division against two ranked opponents. She'd clearly be number one, if not number two, in position for a legitimate title shot. If Sajara wins, she was already supposed to get it. And she beat a girl who was ranked in the division, high in the division, and if she beats her decisively, how can you not say that she's ready for a title shot when the best win Valentina has is over some girl, some Brazilian girl who hasn't beaten anybody of a world-class nature? I think there's a discussion to be had. I don't think it'll go that way, but I think you could have the discussion. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you read, uh, I think his name is Tom Bissell's piece uh, on Bloody Elbow about the MMA gaze and how it impacts women's mixed martial arts and one of the big issues that they yeah, talked about. I did. You did? I did. Okay. I actually talked to him. He, he was interested in coming on our show, so I'm, I'm trying to get 
maybe get that. Yeah, get let's that. definitely get him on the show because that was a hell of a piece, and I love reading it because he. And if um, if you're a fan of mixed martial arts, especially women's mixed martial arts, take your time to read the five part piece. It's not that long, you know. Read a piece of hour or a piece of day, whatever, maybe. But um, it was eye opening hearing the women talk about the way the male gaze has impacted their position in the sport. It's pretty clear. I mean. We can look at who the UFC tries to promote. I mean, they tried to promote Pearl Gonzalez, didn't work out. Paige Vincent, it hasn't worked out yet. Um, they I, are. I always put both sides of that argument. I, I think you make a legit argument because it's always true. But I, I do like what Pearl Gonzalez said. As a female fighter, especially if you're an attractive one, you have doubled the opportunities of a male fighter. And well, I know there's certain reasons. I'm not saying she's yeah. wrong. There, there, there's, I mean, there's, there's a downside to it. But even with male fighters, guys, if you're a good enough fighter and you have some physical feel, like you have enough appeal where women are opening, openly championing you, you're going to get opportunities. I said Oscar De La Hoya. There's another guy in boxing, Ryan Garcia. He's got a huge fan base. He's already fighting on ESPN main card. Is it because he's beaten anybody of, of note? No, he's beat one, one quality guy. But he's got all these Instagram followers, 90% girls, all these Twitter followers. 90% girls. His fight had 8,000 people. 7,500 of them were young girls and older women who wanted to see the cute guy fight. It, physical appeal is always going to be a benefit, especially if you have skills to go with it. And for girls who maybe don't have that physical appeal, they're going to get pushed to the back a little bit. That's just a fact. But if you're a guy who's looking at Matt Lindland, he was a great fighter. Not very attractive, not very stylish, not very charming. He never got the opportunities he should have gotten either. Whereas like a heavyweight like RJ Arvlosky, he got lots of opportunities because he was a Good-looking, exciting, kind of happy. They wanted the belt. They didn't want Tim Sylvia having it. Sylvia's a big, goofy-looking dude. They wanted the good-looking, smooth, stylish guy so they could get people behind. Maybe get the women and get the the women want him and the men want to be like him. It's like the Ric Flair effect. Yeah. I mean, we always laugh, but I mean, Elias Theodore is doing damn well for himself in um, oh, yeah. USC, yeah. in the USC right now. Um, he's getting better. But he's definitely doing damn well for himself. And part of it is because he has he has a look. He has a look that that they want um, to get over. Yep. It's so just, I mean, um, Pedro Cut was brought in for a reason, not because he's the greatest fighter either. And Conor McGregor might not be classically handsome. There are a lot of women who find Conor McGregor attractive, just like there were a lot of women who found Michael Jordan attractive and came to game just so they could see Michael. It, it had nothing to do with basketball. They just wanted to see Michael. And that, that's just, I mean, I'm not saying they have it as bad as women because women get a little bit more hindered by it. And there's a lot, a lot of women who don't get opportunities because of it, but it, it's not as severe for the men, but it is something that exists. I won't ever say it's as severe for the men because it's not. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I mean, it's definitely pretty clear because uh, the, the, we see, you see what happens, like you see what's going on. It's definitely very clear there. Um, what else from UFC Utica stands out? I'm looking forward to, like I said, I'm looking forward to Julio Arce, seeing how Nick this does. Gleason Tebow, still in the UFC after, what, 12 years? He's been in the organization yeah. since uh, he made his UFC de debut at UFC 65 back in 2006. Yeah, 12 years in the game where he lost to Nick Diaz. I mean, yeah. He's been doing the damn thing, but um, we have he's fighting. Who else um, are you looking at for this card on Saturday as a fight that stands out to you? 
I'm interested in T-Bell because it's it's starting to come where it's going to be the end of the era. He's not very much longer for MMA. He still looks like he could be an effective fighter and dominant fighter, but he he's no longer that guy. His chin is not there. His athleticism started to fall off, and he he's never been a good enough all round fighter to uh, to compete on multiple levels. He's always gone by on his physicality, his size, and his wrestling, and and he's not he just can't dominate guys physically anymore. He can't dominate guys athletically. So once he eventually gets stopped or defeated, you're closing you're out on the era of mixed martial arts because he's been around for a very, very long time. So it's kind of sad because you're starting, you're starting to turn that corner where the last remnants of that, that time in MMA no, no longer exists. You know, there's like a couple guys who've been around as long as that, maybe Andre Arvlosky and he hasn't stayed in the UFC the whole time. So once, once he goes, you're officially entering into a new era that doesn't really have any old school guys in there who doesn't really have any guys who, who were, you know, who introduced the world to the sport of mixed martial arts on a on a grand scale? I'm definitely agree with you there. Um, and I'm gonna kind of leave it at that. Uh, what else we got? We have, I have there's a glory event coming up this weekend, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna dive into that as well. Um, so let me know, man. What are you working on this week for MMA ratings and across the industry itself? What are you working on? I'm trying to work on some stuff with the Claudia Gedalia. Um, Carla spars a fight. I, I don't know if I'm going to do a, a do like a thing breaking down them, breaking them down individually, or kind of say what direction each guy, each girl should go to win the fight. I haven't really decided, but I've been getting all my research done and getting a perspective done so I can actually knock the piece out. But it's definitely going to be beast on that. I am really thinking about writing a rather scathing piece on the Vegan Anderson Holly Holm fight. It's probably going to be like featherweight fight or featherweight farce because. As far as ranking goes and weight class, the most illegitimately put together fight that makes no sense as far as rankings or even why this fight happened. The Holly Holm Megan Anderson fight. This fight makes no sense whatsoever. There, there, there's just no reason for this fight to be happening. It, it really isn't. It's just a, it's a, it's a great style matchup. But as far as legitimacy and quality of opposition and what they've accomplished, Megan Anderson shouldn't be fighting Holly Holm, and Holly Holm shouldn't be fighting in a featherweight fight. She's lost. She's lost two fight, two fights. She, she she doesn't have a win in the division. Interesting. She's lost two world title fights. Why are you putting her in against supposedly a potential featherweight contender? She's a bantamweight, a world class bantamweight, yes, but still a bantamweight who hasn't won at featherweight. Why are you making this fight? You couldn't find anybody else to put in against her. I don't know. It's just it's ridiculous to me. It's just ridiculous. True. I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, I'm not gonna. Disagree with you there. Um, I'm working on content for IBJJF Worlds that's going off this week. Uh, congratulations to two of my good friends who uh, participated. Uh, Nicole, well, they're both their names are Nikki. We call one Nico and one Nikki, but they know who they are for the show. Both of them uh, competed this weekend. Uh, they didn't get the W, but they, you know, they got out there and they stepped out to the stage. Congratulations to them. You're out and get better. That's important too. I mean, hey, they to had to get out there to get better. So they know what's up now. I think that they're going to come back um, better than ever uh, in the next few months and going forward. Both of them up to very tough ladies on the mat. Uh, props to them. So, Let me say that. I never, I never competed anything. I never had that urge to. I'm not scared to. I just never had the urge to. So people who go out there and compete and do that, I'm very impressed with them. Nothing but respect from myself as, a, yeah. as, as an interested observer. I respect them greatly. I'm with you on that, man. Definitely congrats to them. Um, I'm working on some pro wrestling stuff as usual. 
Uh, I have some MMA stuff I owe Mike, so I got to get some stuff in this week. But, man, there's always something to do, so we got a lot of content to uh, cover. Yeah, make make sure to make sure to let him know that, that the show's ready to be put on because he's he gets real he gets real salty about that man. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So um, he gets salty with that one. Yeah, I'm gonna I get that message. So when when were y'all gonna tell me the show was on? Yeah, I just ignored. Uh, sorry. Him. He, he, and, yeah. He, and he's trying to get on. I'm not even. Going, I'm not even. I'm at like you know whatever. I'm not gonna say anything. I'm just like it's Raphael's show, man. I'm just a co-host. Guy goes. I just throw. <laughs> okay,